Chapter Nineteen, Part B of the Delafield Affair by Florence Finch Kelly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen, Part B. The Word Unspoken. Lucy Bancroft sat quite still for a few moments, her eyes on the ground, but presently she started toward the house, contriving to pass Conrad when there was no one beside him. She touched his arm, and he wheeled toward her as if he had felt an electric shock. "'It was a most foolish thing to do,' she said in a low voice. "'But you are the bravest man I ever saw,' and hastened on without giving him time to reply. At night there were fireworks and dancing. After the knife-throwing episode Curtis tried again and again to have speech with Lucy, but whenever he came near her she seemed not to see him, and was so interested in conversation with her admirer of the moment that he could find no opportunity. Homer attended her like her own shadow. The hours hurried past, and still, piqued and willful, she postponed making the opportunity for her revelation. Conrad was master of the fireworks. While he was busy setting off skyrockets and mines, Lucy and Homer called to him that they were going to the top of the hill beyond the alfalfa field to see how the display looked from there. It was the very walk Curtis had intended to ask her to take with him, and he glanced after them, keenly disappointed. But he said to himself that as soon as he could get the fireworks out of the way there would be nothing to demand his attention for the rest of the evening, and then he could surely get a little time with her. Half an hour later he saw her through a glare of red fire, setting off firecrackers with his brother and Pendleton. Dan Tillinghurst had just joined them, and she turned to him with a laughing threat, a lighted cracker in her hand. He called to Pendleton, whose pockets were bulging with packs of the crackers, to see fair play and give him weapons of defense. The cool night wind was tossing her brown curls, her bright face was full of animation, and the red light enveloped her in a rosy sheen. He looked at her, his face aglow with admiration, then turned back to the sky-rockets. As he stooped over the box he heard a scream in a girlish voice, followed by the stern command, "'Sit down! Sit down!' in Dan Tillinghurst's heavy tones. Springing up, he saw a white heap sinking to the ground amid leaping tongues of flame, and the three men stripping off their coats and beating the fire. He rushed forward, taking off his coat as he ran and in a moment they had whipped the flames down to a ring of charred muslin and flickering sparks. A dozen others had hurried to the spot, but it was Curtis's outstretched hand that Lucy took as he bent anxiously over her, his arm upon which she leaned as she staggered to her feet. She went at once into the house with Miss Dent and did not reappear that evening. When Louise returned she explained that Lucy had gone to bed, but that except for the nervous shock she had suffered no harm. Curtis Conrad went on sending off skyrockets and Roman candles in the amaze of a new knowledge. That moment of Lucy's peril, brief as it was, had revealed to him the love that, unconsciously to himself, had been burgeoning in his heart throughout the spring. So absorbed had he been in his own grim purpose that he had not realized the meaning of his liking for Lucy, and his enjoyment of her society. But in the light of the flames by which he had seen her circled, her dearness had flashed upon him its real significance. When she leaned upon him as she arose, it had demanded all his self-control to keep from taking her in his arms. His nerves were thrilling yet with the slight pressure of her body upon his arm as she regained her footing. So sudden and forceful was the rush of his emotion that it swept him from his accustomed moorings, and filled heart and mind to the exclusion of every other idea. Lucy! Lucy! 
Lucy, he said her name over and over in his innermost thought, even while he danced with Mrs. Turner, strolled with Miss Whittaker to the hilltop, as he had wished to do with Lucy, talked with Martinez, or listened to Judge Harlan's stories. The thought of her was constantly with him, enveloped in a wonderful tenderness. His memory was incessantly recalling images of her, as she looked leaning against this tree, seated beside that table, walking across the road. He hovered around Miss Dent until she, to escape from his attention and his solicitude about Lucy, which intensified the aversion and resentment she already felt, retired to the house early in the evening. But when all the merrymakers had gone to bed and quiet had settled upon the ranch, Conrad began to feel a violent wrenching of his heart. When he stretched himself upon the roof of the house and gazed into the silvery-violet sky, his lifelong purpose reasserted itself. For so many years it had been his habit, as he composed himself for sleep, to think over his plans for the pursuit of Delafield, and feed his heart with the desire for revenge that he quickly felt its tyranny. For a moment all emotion ceased, and his mind stood back aghast at itself, bewildered. Then the old idea took possession again, and he said to himself, almost with anger, "'What business have I to fall in love?' To think of Lucy in connection with his own dark and bloody aims was repellent and his thoughts turned away in quick reaction. Then came the remembrance of Homer's devotion to her, and of how welcome apparently had been his attentions. So for that time at least Lucy and love were turned out of his heart, and his last waking thoughts were of his plan to go to Albuquerque and Santa Fe within a few days, there to run down the clues that promised most. Because of all that had gone on in his mind and heart as he lay on the roof that night, Conrad's manner toward Lucy the next morning was graver and more restrained than usual. He was keenly alive to the magic of her presence, but for that he rebuked himself and went near her no oftener than he could help. Lucy tried in vain to find an opportunity for private speech with him. And so the time came for their departure, and the fateful words had not been said. Well, she consoled herself, he will come to see us in Golden before long, and I will tell him then. As they drove away the house was filled with the bustle of leave-taking. The guests who had come by rail were being driven to the station at White Rock to catch the forenoon train. Others were leaving by horse or carriage for Golden or Randall. As the dust from the last of the departing vehicles rose in thin gray stains against the vivid blue of the sky, Ned Castleton called to his wife from the shade of the tree beside the gate. She had been saying good-bye to the Bancrofts, and had stopped in the sun beside the adobe wall to play with a horned toad that Gonzales had caught for her. "'Fanny,' he said, "'I know I haven't got horns, but if you'll come here in the shade I'll prove that I can be just as interesting as that toad.' She came, holding the weird little creature on her palm. "'Look at him, Ned. Isn't he cunning? He's the dearest thing I ever saw, except you.' "'Oh, thanks. It's kind of you not to put me in the same class. As a reward I'll tell you some news. Your little scheme for balking Lena's designs on Conrad has succeeded perfectly.' Turner has just told me that she has suddenly decided she wants to go to Santa Barbara at once, and they're leaving this afternoon. I told him to go ahead, and I'd stay here a few days longer and finish things up with Kurt. That's just splendid, Ned. We'll have some lovely rides, won't we? And it will be such a rest not to have to keep an eye on Lena. I felt sure last night that she was going to give up the game and pretend she hadn't been playing, because she suddenly lost all interest in the cattle business." "'Of course you know, Francisquita, that you have been behaving shamelessly. 
But I'll forgive you, because you've saved our model superintendent for us. Ned, you know very well that I didn't do a thing but just help Mr. Conrad make it pleasant for all the people, except, perhaps, Lena. I'm afraid she'd have had a better time if I hadn't been here. But I've been thinking this morning, Ned, that maybe it wasn't necessary for me to help quite as hard as I did. What do you think about it? I think I don't know what you're talking about. As the cowboys say, you've flung gravel along the road a little too fast for my gate. Ned, you're the blindest thing. What could I mean, except that Mr. Conrad didn't need to be distracted from Lena, especially as her methods are so broad? Well, go on, dear. We'll get there after a while. Go on. Why, Ned, that's all. Isn't that enough? Why should a man want more than one pretty girl to protect him from the designs of a lady who, well, who wants to shave him? You never needed anybody but me. True, Fanny, but you always were equal to an army in yourself, and now you are equal to two, which is only another way of saying that you grow more fascinating every day, and now I think you might be gracious enough to tell me what you're talking about. Why, Ned, I'm afraid Miss Bancroft didn't enjoy it any more than Lena. I wasn't quite sure of it until this morning, but I really think, Ned, that Lena would have been left out in the cold just the same if I hadn't hadn't helped Mr. Conrad entertain the people quite so much." Castleton laughed. "'Oh, I begin to see. You are feeling the pangs of remorse because you've been putting snags in the course of true love. But you needn't worry, dear. Kurt isn't the sort of man, if he cares anything about her, to let a little thing like that make any difference. But he'll be too busy with you to go over to Golden and see her again for a long time, won't he? Oh, we can get through this week, I think. Good. Then we can leave on Saturday, and on Sunday he can gallop over to Golden, and by that time she'll want awfully to see him, and she'll be very sorry she flirted so outrageously with Don Homer. And next fall we'll send them a wedding present, and they'll come to see us on their wedding journey. She's a dear sweet girl, Ned, and I like her, and I'll explain to her why I— why I helped Mr. Conrad make things pleasant at the barbecue, and we'll have a jolly laugh over it. There he is now, Ned. Do go right along and begin your work, so we'll be sure to leave on Saturday." When Conrad bade the Castletons good-bye at the railway station at the end of the week, Francisquita said to him, "'When you see that pretty Miss Bancroft again—here she gave him a significant glance, and then demurely lowered her eyes. Please tell her that I hope to see her again, and that if she ever comes to San Francisco, she must let me know. You can give her our address. We'll be delighted, Ned and I, to help her have a good time. She's a dear, lovely girl, and I'd really like to know her better." Curtis drove home, declaring to himself that Mrs. Ned was one of the most charming women he knew. He would ride over to Golden tomorrow afternoon and deliver her message. He lingered fondly over the image of Lucy's slender figure standing at the top of her veranda steps, and smiling upon him a gay and gracious welcome, and a strong desire rose in his heart to know just how glad she really would be to see him. But the recollection of his plans for the ensuing week came crashing through his pleasant thoughts like a runaway horse through a flower-garden. For a moment the purpose that held his life in thrall seemed strangely unworthy, but presently he jammed his hat down on his head, and with compressed lips said savagely to himself, no, the Delafield affair is my first love, and I'll stay with it." As he thought over his plans and hopes for the immediate future, his heart grew hot again with the old indignation over all that ruin and struggle, and the old purpose regained its accustomed vigour. 
After a little, nevertheless, he decided that he would ride over to the Bancrofts the next day and deliver Mrs. Castleton's message. It would do no harm for him to see Lucy occasionally, in the friendly way in which they had always met. End of chapter 19, part B.